in part three of our series, The Mad God. And we've been looking at uh, just how do we understand God in the Old Testament? Is he an angry God? Uh, have, we, have we gotten this idea that God is mad? Now, when I first heard the term churchianity, it resonated. Now, you know, I grew up in a small rural church in southern Maine. It was an awesome church, and I was surrounded by people who loved God, loved his word, and taught me God's, God's love and God's word. But it was also a culturally conservative New England rural church. And so there were certain things that just came. And we talked some about that in previous weeks. Of There's these ideas that kind of were just part of the experience of who is God and how do we relate to him. And so oftentimes we have this idea that God, especially in the Old Testament, was kind of on edge, kind of tough, kind of maybe angry, and, and do we have to be careful? And then, of course, then we bring that into church. And we talked about this last week that, you know, when I would come into church, it was the sanctuary. We were coming, we have come into his house, and we're coming into the house of the Lord. We're coming into the presence of God. And because you are entering into the presence of God in the sanctuary, now there were certain levels of behavior and certain level standards that you needed to hit because it was appropriate for being in the presence of God. And so, you know, you need to dress your best and you need to bring your best offering. And then, when, then we do communion. If you've done communion with me, you know we do it different. But then we come communion and say, okay, now we're going to take communion and you need to examine yourself to make sure you've got all your sins confessed because you could die because you need to make sure that you are good enough. Make sure that you are now measuring up to coming into the presence of God. And so we, even though we were taught grace, we were taught salvation and we were taught well, there's this idea of kind of like God handle with care. And so we've been looking at, is that the way God is? Is that what the Bible presents? And in part one, two weeks ago, we looked at the Garden of Eden. And we looked at the first big sin where Adam and Eve blow it huge, this massive rebellion. And that God responds to this act of massive cosmic rebellion by clothing them and promising salvation through a Messiah that would come and crush the head of the serpent while he himself was injured. And so we saw God responding with, I will provide salvation and I will clothe you. And then we moved into week two last week, and we looked at the idea of, okay, now when I come in, is this, this idea of the perfect sacrifice, which we get from the Old Testament, from the temple, and the fact that they were supposed to present sacrifices that were the best and were without blemish. And we looked at, so does that mean that that is what God is demanding of us, that you are now required to bring a sacrifice and it better be good enough? And we looked at the fact that the Bible clearly taught that the reason for that requirement of perfection was not to teach you what you needed to do, but to teach you that you needed Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice, that Jesus is the perfect lamb, and that you didn't, it wasn't that you needed to now measure up, it was that you couldn't, and that God was going to provide the satisfaction of his own anger through himself, through Jesus on the cross. So then that brings us to this week where we talk about being lawfully awful because where do we get these ideas for all these standards? Where do we get these ideas for our, how we're supposed to behave? Well, let's start with the Ten Commandments. All right, we've got the, the top ten there. Those are good. And then there's all those other laws that go with it. Now, we know we're saved through faith. We know that, well, you know, obviously we aren't good enough, so God had to die for us. So we start there, but then we say, but now... But now that you got Jesus to forgive your past, now in your present, 
Now that you, he's cleaned up the mess you made, you were terrible back then, but now you found Jesus and you have a mar marvelous testimony and I was terrible, but now, amen, hallelujah. And now, well, now it matters. And now you better follow the rules because that's what God desires of you. And so now we've got those commandments coming into play. Is that what the Bible teaches? So that brings us to what... Jim just read for us in Romans 7, 5 through 13. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing the book of Romans, one of the things that's really amazing about the book of Romans is because, and we, we miss this because it's not part of our culture, but, of course, the book of Romans is written to... Romans! There we go. See, these are the easy questions. All right? Written to Romans. So, the Ro in Rome, of course, Rome was run by... Romans, there we go, see, see, you're getting it now, uh-huh, you'll get there. Um, they had, at one point, one of the emperors kicked all the Jews out of Rome. The Jews had to leave, they were, they were expelled from the city, but you had the church, you had churches in Rome, all well, usually house churches, and the churches had been Jewish and Gentile, and of course the church had started as a Jewish movement, so the early church had started as predominantly culturally and racially Jewish. But then suddenly the church in Rome lost all their Jews because they were kicked out. And then there was a change politically and the Jews were allowed back in. So they come back to Rome and they come back to church, but church has changed because the church has continued to grow, but it's grown as a Gentile thing. And so now they're back and yet it's weird. And so now how do you, you have these two different sensibilities between Jews that have grown up their whole lives if you follow the Torah and you do what the law says, and that's part of what God demands. And then you have these Gentiles who have a different background. And so the book of Romans is written to work through this. And all the way through the book of Romans, Paul is helping them navigate this massive cultural breach and this massive cultural integration. And it's a, when you read Romans and understand what Paul's doing, it will add a lot of richness to what's going on. We're just going to take a little piece here in what Jim read, verses 5 through 13, as he is trying to help them understand how does the law fit into what, they're, what they've learned as far as salvation in Christ. And in verse 5 and in verse 7, he gives us a definition of what the law's purpose is. Verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law. Aroused, you might have a different word for aroused. You might have provoked or some other word. Aroused by the law. Skipping down to verse 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin, if it arouses sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So Paul here gives two functions of the law. First, he says in verse 5, It arouses sin. It stirs up sin. The picture that you might want to pick is if you take a little cinder, something that's like burning, but it's just a cinder, and you pour gasoline on it, it will arouse that cinder. You will get more flame, all right? But if you pour gasoline on, say, that chair, the chair won't burst into flame because it's not a, the, the gasoline isn't the flame but it arouses it. And then the second thing in verse 7, it says it defines sin. It tells you what sin is. He said, I didn't know anything about coveting until the law said, do not covet. And I went, oh, 
Now I know about coveting. So it defines sin and it arouses sin. So then the question is, well then, is something wrong with the law? Is the law a bad thing? And so in verse 7, verse 10, and verse 12, he answers that. He says, well, no. Verse 7, is the law sin? May it never be. He goes, no. That's, no, it's not sin. Verse 10, and this commandment, which was to result in life. He goes, it was supposed to result in life. Verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He goes, no, so the law produces sin in me, but it's not sinful, it's good. And it should result in life. When I encounter the law, it should cause good things. It doesn't, but that's not the law's fault. The law is good and holy and righteous. Well, then what's the problem? If the law is so good, how come when the law encounters me, bad things happen? How does it, or why does it arouse sin in me if it's good? And he says this in verse 9 and verse 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Verse 11. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So he goes, the law's not the problem. The law's not what hurts me. It's sin. The law defines my sin. The law enrages, provokes, arouses my sin. But sin is the problem, and it kills me. The law doesn't get me. Sin does. And so he pulls this together in verse 13. Therefore, therefore, did what is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. And then he puts it all together. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. And there you see the two things he has said about what the law does. It arouses sin and defines sin. And you see that in 13. He said, first, rather it was shown to be sin. In other words, defined. The law said, this is what sin is. And then it says, through the commandment, sin became utterly sinful. In other words, it really got worse. The law provoked something in me that created a sinful request. And so that's why I wanted to use the black light. Or if you go to the doctors and they're like, we need to look inside you. So they make you swallow some sort of dye. And then they put you in the x-ray or whatever. And then it shows things. Well, they're not looking for the dye. They're not, oh, look, you're pretty now. We're making art. No, it's, the whole point is to reveal something that was already there, but they couldn't see before. So they are using something to reveal something about you. And that's what Paul said the law was designed to do. It was designed to show you that you have a sin issue by doing two things. A, defining it, and B, provoking it. Stirring it up. Taking something that was there and fanning it into flame so that it's obvious that you have a problem. And so it reveals 
that sin is utterly sinful. And then he says in verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter, the letter being the law, the letter of the law. So then he makes this statement. He says, and now we've been freed from that. Huh? Okay, what, is, what does that mean, to be freed from the law? So with that, we need to turn to our second reference, Galatians 3, 21 through 25. Paul writing to a different church. Galatians 3. If you're using the Bible app, I put both of these in the Bible app for today. Galatians 3, 21 through 25. And you'll hear Paul, and he's going to sound the same as he just sounded in Romans, because he's talking about the same thing in the same way. He's going to ask questions and answer them. Verse 21 of Galatians 3. Is the law contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if the law had been, if the law, I'm sorry, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So here's what he said before. He said, the law is good and it should have been able to give life, but it can't. He said, man, if it could have, then it would be a great way to become righteous. But, verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, sin being the issue, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so he adds this idea. He says, first, again, the law cannot impart life. It can't make you righteous. He says, if righteousness could have produced, if the law could have produced righteousness, that'd been great. Can you imagine if, if because we were different, the law, we reacted to the law different? Where when the law came in, all you need to do is hear the law and you obeyed it. If you're having trouble visualizing that, if you've ever worked with kids or you were a kid yourself, which I think I just hit everybody, and you just, you tell a kid, this is what you should do. And the kid says, thank you. Now I know. And from then on, they always do it. Why? Because you told them. Yeah. But that's not how it works. Try that with adults. This is what you need to do. Thank you. All I needed to do was know. Because once I am hit with the knowledge of what to do, I instinctively do it. Doesn't happen. In fact, what happens? The opposite, right? He says, if only if we were different, the law would produce righteousness in you. He goes, but it doesn't. It produces sin. But the problem isn't the law. The problem is you. And since it cannot impart life, the law doesn't bring righteousness out of you. It brings sin out of you. The law brings sin out of you. Why? Because it defines and arouses sin in you. He says, so it doesn't do that. And then he says, but the law is a tutor to what? To bring you to Jesus. 
Because the law doesn't teach you to be good. It teaches you that you need someone who is good. Because the law just shows you how bad off you are. The law shows you you've got a problem and you need Jesus. He says, so the law was meant to teach you like a tutor to go see Jesus. And once you go see Jesus, then you don't need the tutor anymore. So that's what he talks about because Jesus is what makes us good. Now that's nice to talk about, but let's work through it because it's not so simple because we use the law to try to be good. That's what we do. How do I know how to do the right thing? Okay, Ten Commandments. We'll start there. I need to keep the Ten Commandments. I need to do the Ten Commandments. Why? Because if I follow Ten Commandments, then I'll be good. And that works great for parenting. Again, I tell, tell my kids, this is what you're supposed to do. And if you do it, then you're good children. If you don't, now you're in trouble. And I'm not saying that that's not valid parenting. I hope it is. But as far as our relationship with God goes, we try to use the law to be good. And the law is good. The law is good. Paul was clear. The law is righteous. But by design, it demonstrates our badness. That's what Paul's saying. The law was designed not to make you good, but to show your badness. It's designed to expose and exacerbate your problem. That's what it's there for. And so the more you use it, I don't always remember what I've got for notes here. The more you use it, the worse you're going to get. It aggravates sin. This thing is just not being responsive. It's kind of like using gasoline as a fire extinguisher. Oh no, I've got a fire. Let me throw gas on it to help it calm down. Well, what does it do? Now you've got a bigger fire. Why? Because the law was not designed to combat the sin in you. It was, com- it was designed to provoke it. And like I said, we all know this, and it works both ways. I remember, it was so frustrating. Like, it was frustrating on two levels. It was frustrating that why does this happen? And then it was frustrating when it happened. I remember as a kid, probably early teens, thinking, I'm going to surprise mom. I'm going to do a surprise for mom. I'm going to wash the dishes. She's going to walk out. Because I love surprises. I'm going to walk out of the kitchen, and she's going to walk into the kitchen, and the dishes will be done. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to surprise mom. I'm going to wash the dishes. And then mom walks to the kitchen. She goes, Ira, by the way, if you'd wash the dishes, that'd be great. Mom! I wanted to go out and play. And I'm not just like trying to obscure the fact that I really do want to wash the dishes. No, I actually don't want to wash them anymore. I really do not want to wash the dishes anymore. I'm angry now. A minute ago, I was going to surprise her and I'm going to wash the dishes. Then she asked me to and now I don't want to. She's ruined it. And now I'm frustrated because one, she ruined it. And I'm also frustrated because why? What happened? Like, why am I that way? Like, I, I just suddenly don't want to. My whole inside has changed. Why? 
because of this. Because we are all rebels. And God says, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to give you my perfect law. And your reaction to that perfect law will be to go, "Uh uh-uh. And I'll go, exactly. That's my point. But what we do is we take the law and say, okay, so now now that I'm a believer, I should try to follow this stuff. And God's like, yeah, that ain't going to work. No, no, I need to just try harder to be good. And so I'm going to take the law and I'm going to apply it to myself harder and harder. We walk into church and we say, okay, now you're all in church, so here's the law and here's what you've got to do. And something inside you is constantly fighting it. And the harder I... So you have churches that can be really good on this where as far as really strict. Where, you know, as a pastor, I go, okay, guys, I'm going to be monitoring you to make sure you're being good. That you're following the rules. And for a while, we'll all look great. But there will be this tension underneath the surface because everything in you is fighting it. But you say, but I want to be good. I really do want to be good. And what happens in churches that are like that? Eventually, something goes, because under the surface, the law was at work. And what was the law doing? It was provoking more sin. And the heavier the law was applied, the heavier the provocation, but it was suppressed. It was suppressed, but it didn't go away. And then all of a sudden, and you see pastors, and you see church members, and it's bad. And the stricter, oftentimes the worse. Why? Why, if they're being so devout to the law, does it get so much worse corrupt-wise? Well, because that's what the law was designed to do, to provoke the sin in us. Why? So that we'd stop trying to do it ourselves. Because, see, here's the issue. God is not demanding. We look at the law and we say, God is demanding. Look at this law. It's so hard. He's giving us these things, and it's so hard to keep them. But the point is that God is demonstrating our need for Him. The law is designed to show you that you can't do it. That's what Paul's saying. It was a tutor to teach you that you needed Jesus. But we go, okay, Jesus, okay, I know I need Jesus, so now I need to be good. And Jesus is like, no. The purpose of the law was to expose your rebellion, not to tame it. The law will continue to provoke your rebellion. That's what it's there to do. Paul said it makes sin exceedingly sinful. Come to me and get away from that now. Because a law cannot result in righteousness. And that's a tough one for us because we think if we start checking boxes and hit like, hey, I got 80% of the law, I'm pretty good. And Paul said, there's, you, there's no righteousness there. There's nothing, you do not gain a thing by keeping the law. It's to correct our efforts since Eden to define good and bad on our own. See, this is the thing that I missed for a long time that the whole scope of the Bible story, starting in Genesis, it's not just that we read it too broken up, and we read it as too many little rules. When the whole story starts with, and on all the way through, God is trying to teach you to stop doing it on your own. So you start with Adam and Eve, and God said, this is good, and 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 this is not good. And then Adam and Eve look at that which he told you is not good. You can't eat of this one. It's not good for you. 
and through help with the devil, they're told, no, it is good. And it says, and they decided it was good. Eve looked at it and said it was good. And what was this mysterious thing? Was it just a random commandment? Just a random, don't walk on the grass, that they just violated the rule? No, the story is bigger than that. It wasn't just a random piece of fruit. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Tov and Ra. And God had said, listen, this is good and this is bad. Tov and Ra. I'll tell you what is good and bad. And mankind started by saying, you know what? I think I can figure that out for myself. And that's good. You get to judges and what does it say? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There is a way that seems right to man, but it ends in death. And throughout human history, we have said, I'll figure out what's right and wrong for myself. Why? Because once I can figure out good and bad on my own, then I can call myself good. Eve looks at that fruit and says, I think that's good, and I think it's good for me to make one wise. I'll be able to define good and evil, good and bad, on my own and declare myself good. And so this is what we've been trying to do. Why? Because once we can call ourselves good on our own, once we can justify, which means to call yourself good, once you can do that on your own, you can operate separate from God. And so what have we been doing since the Garden of Eden? We'll even take God's rules and then use them to operate what? Separate from God. The Pharisees. They took the law, they studied it, and they said, and now we can do it. In fact, we'll add in a few more to be really good at this. And Jesus says, you know, you've been studying the word and you look in there because you think that's going to give you life. But it's talking about me. You've been studying the law for years. You are teachers of the law but you don't understand the law was to tell you about me. And instead, they were just busy passing laws and making people, and he says, you're just tying up burdens for people, making them carry them, and you don't even keep them that well yourself. But what did they say? They thought they were good. They thought they were good. But they were using the law to think that. And that's what happens to us. We say, okay, I know Jesus saved my sins, but now I need to be good. So I will take the law and I will apply it to my efforts to become good. And Jesus says, the law wasn't meant to make you good. It can't. Because now you're operating separate from me. Oh, you're talking about me. Yeah. But you're trying to be good through your own effort, separate from me. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Separation from God. What is separation from God? It's just a big way of saying death. God is life. Separation from God is death. Jesus said the minute, God said to Adam and Eve, when you eat of that, you'll die. The minute you eat that, you'll die. Why? Because you will be, you are separating yourself from me. And the whole of human history is God trying to say, stop separating yourself from me. I'm trying to bring you back. I'm going to give you the law to show you that you have been rebelling against me from the get-go. And so I'm going to give you my righteousness in a way that will show you that you can't do it by yourself. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you just won't do as good enough of a job. Do you know the verse? It's not how it goes, is it? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not you just can't do as well. There is, and Paul said, there is no righteous, there is no path to good through the law. 
And we try to do it by being separate from God. God wants to make you good through Jesus. He wants to declare you good. And yet we still pull out the rules and say, okay, this is what I need to do in order to earn God's favor, in order for God to see me as good. And God says, no. And if you keep, and so I talk to a lot of, I talk to a lot of teenagers and young adult men, and they're struggling. And they're struggling with sin issues. I'm sure women do too, but I tend to talk to men. And the thing I hear over and over again is, why haven't I beaten this by now? I'm trying so hard, and I'm trying, and I'm trying, and I'm trying, and then I mess up. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't be messing up anymore. And I'm like, well, what did you think was going to happen? Well, I thought that if I memorized and studied and tried hard enough, I'd be better. Well, no wonder you're exhausted. The Bible says explicitly that that's not how you get there. That you are sitting there pounding yourself with the law. You should, you should, you should, you should, you should, you should. And what's it doing? It's building up a resistance in you. Why? It was designed to. It's trying to teach you that you'll never make it. And you're sitting there going, I am such a failure. God's like, yes, good. Now we agree. Can we move on? Like, no, no, I got to keep trying, God. What part of without me, you can do nothing? We're like, well, God, I just need you to help my efforts. But what does it say all the way through here? It's through sanctification. It's through God's work. But Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We are justified. We are made right through God's work, not your effort. And it doesn't change just because you got saved. You don't suddenly pass from grace to work. You'll never be righteous through trying to follow the law. Well, then what do we do? Well, we're going to talk about that the whole rest of the summer. Always leave them wanting more, right? But we start with God wants to make you good through Jesus. So when you hit that big failure that you fought so hard for and it's still there, You're supposed to cry out to God. Say, I need more grace. I need more mercy because I'm a wreck. And God's like, yeah. Focus on what I've done, not what you're doing. Focus on how I have provided for you. And I have sent you my spirit to live in you. And that's a mystery. How does that work? Holy Spirit, where is he? I don't know. He doesn't show up on the x-ray. But he said that he's, he's come to live within me. How does that work? I don't know but I know it's real. And he says, and if you begin to focus on me and you begin to operate not under that obligation, but under a sincere thankfulness for the mercy that you have to rely on because you're such a wreck, that it will begin to change how you act. And you'll start being different. And sometimes you won't even know why. Because the power of the Spirit and that's why I wanted to sing ancient words this morning. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. Uh, Rich Mullins in his song Creed is where he sings the 
one of the Apostles' Creed, he's, he says, I did not make it, though it is making me. Because God will begin to supernaturally change us. He will not make it so that you never mess up anymore. Because, as Paul said, I want to do good, and I don't always do it. And there's bad I don't want to do, and I keep doing that. Wretched man that I am, who will stop this? Jesus, who will free me from this body. But in the meantime, i got to keep coming back to him. And live in the grace and mercy that is Jesus. So the question is, the question is, it's not up yet. The question is, are you still living under the tutor? Are you trying to achieve goodness by the application of the law? Do you every week live under that, I'm supposed to? If you do, then you know the tension. You know there's something in you that fights it every day. And you go, what's wrong with me? Well, the Bible tells you what's wrong with you. It's called sin. And it's in you. And every time you feel that tension between what you should, it's God reminding you that you'll never do it without him. And it's meant to call you to cry out again to the one who loved you and died for you. And to make your focus not trying to be good for him, but to pay your attention to him.